Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Before I introduce my guests, as I've been doing on a few of these podcasts, people ask, what can um, you do as listeners to help support the podcast? And just do the things you're doing. Share the podcast with others. Go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Um, leave a review on iTunes. All those things help more engage in the podcast. The podcast really isn't much about me, the podcast host. The podcast is about these brave people that come share their stories. They're really the heroes of this platform. And I'm grateful for many that have shared their stories. I've certainly learned and grown and felt at times this is an incredibly sacred space as people vulnerably share their stories. And I think stories help us bring us together as the same human family. So we have a story for you. Um, my guest on today's podcast is my friend, Madison Belknap. Um, welcome to the podcast, Madison. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Madison is here in my home in Salt Lake City. We've been doing some of these via Zoom and some in my home. Um, she is married. She's in her 30s. She has two daughters. She teaches high school in uh, Davis County. She's a 2012 BYU graduate. And she's going to talk about, in fact, I'm going to let her introduce her topic. Hi. Um, <clears throat> thank you for that nice introduction. Um, I'm going to be talking about intuitive eating and why it matters for spiritual growth and development and why it mattered so much for me. Um, Good. That's perfect. And I think one of the things you said that was interesting before we started to re record is this not not eating right or not looking, I don't know the right vocabulary, kept you from sort of being the person you wanted to be and ministering and helping and, and sort of this paradigm shift you've had in your own journey now allows you to sort of be who you need to be and be able to help people. So we're just going to talk more about that. Um, Anything else you just want to share, Madison, from an introductory standpoint, or do you want to share like who you really hope listens to this podcast and kind of the things that you hope change in their mind? That's a great question. Um, my hope with this episode um, is to talk to those who are feeling badly about the way they look, um, people who have been in the rat race of dieting chronically or have maybe come into a diet for the first time. And it feels like they're no longer making food choices that come from themselves, but come from an external place. Um, I hope that people who feel like their bodies don't fit into what society says is quote unquote, right. Um, can learn, maybe take the first step to respecting their bodies and to honoring their uniqueness and their purpose and their divinity as a child of God. Love that. I think this is a podcast for everybody. Um, sometimes when we hear this topic, we think of women, we think of younger women. Um, but I would invite all of our listeners, no matter where we are, men or women or younger or older, that there may be some things that Madison shares that are helpful for all of us. Because I think all of us are in this space a little bit at times, culturally and with social media and with expectations. Um, so talk about Madison, your relationship with f food growing up. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I grew up in like the most typical LDS family. I grew up in Arizona. Um, I'm the oldest of four children, mom, dad, I have two brothers and a sister. Um, I grew up around a lot of extended family. My dad's the oldest of eight kids. Um, and just to give you an idea of how um, maybe culturally LDS, my family is, my dad is the oldest of eight children whose names all start with the letter K. Um, and so one of our hobbies when we were younger was being able to recite all eight kids in order from oldest to youngest. Did you make up a song like we, we did didn't, in but seminary? We, we like definitely we... <laughs> should have made a rap or something. I, it was catchy and the names were, are very creative and I adore all of my aunts and uncles. I great. love having, I loved having a big family. Um, my mom is a convert. And her family's on the East Coast. And so we grew up spending a lot of time in Florida, which is where she's from. Um, and I grew up with a lot of religious diversity because my mom's a convert. She converted from the Episcopalian faith tradition. I have an aunt who is 
um, evangelical Christian. I have an aunt and uncle who are kind of agnostic. I have um, an aunt and uncle and all my cousins who are Catholic. Um, and then in the area I grew up in, in Tempe, Arizona, I had a lot of friends who were Jewish growing up. Um, and I just had a lot of exposure to diverse faith traditions. And it was really fun. I got to do Passover seders and Hanukkah nights when I was younger with some of my friends in elementary school. And the school I went to was, my elementary school was pretty diverse. And my parents were really cool about these different things that we would talk about in our schools, about different traditions and different ways of celebrating things. Um, and at the time, I didn't think any of anything of it, but as I've kind of dug through a lot of things in the last six years of I've kind of deconstructed and reconstructed my faith. Um, I recognize places where I have so much gratitude that my parents were pretty open-minded for the time. This was in the nineties. One instance, um, I had a friend in elementary school, third and fourth and fifth grade. Um, and I spent a lot of time at her house. She played tennis and I played tennis also. And, um, I had sleepovers there. And I think at the time it just wasn't, um, as socially acceptable, but her mom, she had two moms and my parents never said anything in any which way about it. They let me spend time there. They weren't, um, they just never made any comments about it. I never thought anything of it until a lot later in life when I realized like, oh, well, her mom was a lesbian or was queer. And it was, my parents were totally cool with it. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, as a parent now, my daughter has a classmate who she's close with, who also has two moms. And it's something that I think with each generation becomes, um, while it's still the, the people who are on that path, I think it's so, I don't know what that's like. And so I, I try to sit with not knowing what that's like and trying to amplify LGBTQ voices. And at the same time, I'm so grateful that I didn't have to deal with dismantling homophobia to the extent that so many people do when they're getting into some more of the, the harder ministry, I think for some people is trying to dismantle their preconceived notions of people and what they are. Um, and I credit my parents to that. They're, they're pretty open and pretty awesome. That said, <laughs> um, my family still is very image focused. And from what I have observed, I think that that's kind of typical within LDS culture. In fact, um, I was doing a little bit of research for this interview and I remembered a friend told me about an article um, from a few years ago. It was in Allure magazine and it was about why so many lifestyle and beauty bloggers are, at the time it was Mormon was the title. And um, I had never thought of that before. I just knew of so many LDS women who were bloggers. And I actually, as part of my intuitive eating journey, I stepped away from social media and I'm not active on it. So hmm. that is, um, I wasn't very familiar with the people in this article, but it was very interesting to see how, wow, like there are, and maybe it's more in the Western LDS culture, the Rocky Mountain West, California, that's more prominent than my brothers used to say that the prettiest girls were in Utah. And that was something that I heard a lot growing up. And I think it was just a little quip about Utah women, but, um, my, my family in particular, um, really emphasized looks and being a certain body size as being better than, you know, a different being in a larger body wasn't acceptable in my family. And I remember, um, conversations that my mom would have with her friends or with my aunts about, you know, sister so-and-so in the ward has gained so much weight or sister so-and-so in the world ha ward has lost so much weight or ex neighbor, or Y neighbor has gained or lost weight or had some plastic surgery. Um, and that was very normal in, in my household to have those conversations. My parents went on lots of diets. I remember I could probably name every popular diet of the nineties and early two thousands because they were on every single one of them. And I don't want to name them and give them any extra publicity because they certainly don't need it. But um, 
by the time I was um, really aware of my body, I wasn't super conscientious as a child around my body. Um, but by the time puberty hit, it was something that you start to talk about as, as friends and as peers. Um, I remember, you know, going through those changes that are super normal and thinking, Oh, my, my body looks different and I am changing and it's not okay. And I, remember going on my first diet when I was 14. And I remember um, really hoping, and I I had no idea what that meant. I mean, I just thought, oh, well, I should or shouldn't eat certain types of foods. I shouldn't eat French fries anymore because they're quote unquote bad. And I should eat more. I don't know, at the time it was probably wheat thins. I should eat more wheat thins or whatever because they're quote unquote like healthy snacks. Um, And by the time I was in high school, I was pretty thick into this chronic cycle of restricting and then binging because restricting and binging kind of go hand in hand. I mean, you really only binge if you've been restricting. Um, And I exercised, I mean, I played sports and so I was, I was exercising for sports and then I would start, I would engage in more structured exercise. I had a gym membership when I was 14 and went, um, pretty frequently. Um, and I really stayed on that, that diet, just a constant chronic diet from the time I was 14, um, all the way into my mid twenties. Um, and I exercised a lot. Uh, my, my days, even with little kids revolved around what the gym's childcare was like. Um, when I could go to classes, um, when I could leave my kids, when I could wake up early enough to go without them and then go back with them, um, and really trying to control a lot of my discomforts around other parts of my life with my food and with exercise. And it became very dysfunctional. Um, I was subclinical is the term, but I, I was not, I would not be someone that would be diagnosed with anorexia or bulimia. I didn't meet the criteria medically speaking, but I really needed help. I needed a lot of help to dismantle so much of those ideas that I had absorbed from the culture I grew up in. Um, I, (laughs) one thing that happened. And at the time I was really ticked off about it, but it ended up being, um, such a great blessing in my life was I got a knee injury, which obviously, cause I was working out, like I was a professional athlete and I'm not, um, I had a knee injury and I was forced to just stop. I had to stop and I had to stop and I had to start really listening to my body. I had just pushed it so hard for so long. And I was caring for, um, my daughter, Lily at the time was two, my oldest. And, um, I had to totally slow down and I was introduced to this paradigm, this framework called intuitive eating through podcast, through this whole like rabbit hole of it's where it was a dieting podcast, which led to a different podcast who, the guest was on another podcast. And before I knew it, I was listening to intuitive eating podcasts and I had never heard of it. I'd never heard of intuitive eating, which for those of you who don't know, intuitive eating is, um, it's a framework of eating that returns us to the way we are born eating. Um, and I love that. It, I do too. Because I look at our little grandkids and our kids growing up and they just don't overeat. They just they know. just know exactly what they need. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by that. And it's, I, I sometimes, yeah. Keep and sharing. so, yeah, it's so interesting. I watch my kids too. It's like, uh, you can have your own little, I don't know, research lab with kids. Um, but they're, they're so in tune with their biological needs. They're tired and they go to sleep and they're hungry and they eat and they're full and they stop 
or sometimes they're full and then they come back and take another bite of the cookie and then keep playing. And it's so neutral and flexible. And I had gotten so, so far away from that, that it felt impossible. I remember being introduced to it and I thought there is no way that I could ever unlearn the things that I, I mean, I knew the calorie of a strawberry and I just thought, well, I'll try it, but it's not going to work for me. And so I got the book. The book is, it's by two dietitians, um, Evelyn Tribbley and Elise Resch. They wrote the book in the nineties. So while we were all busy with, you know, all the other diets, they were trying to help people who had been on all the diets. Um, And these women wrote a really amazing book and they're the 25th anniversary edition just came out last summer. So July of 2020, um, the intuitive eating book, which I can't recommend enough. It's like next to any other inspiring book on our bookshelf. It's, it changed my life. And I really do think it would change everyone's life because it's just a return to how we were born knowing so many things that because of external sources, our families, our cultures, our media, um, even really well-intentioned healthcare providers, um, we lose that sense for ourselves. And I was kind of determined. I have, I have a rebellious streak, I have to admit. And I was, I kind of looked at it like, I'm going to be a diet, I'm going to be a diet rebel. And I'm going to, I'm going to kind of kick back against this, you know, what people expect me to do. I'm not going to go on a 30 day ancestral challenge again. I'm going to try this. Um, and so my first leap of faith into intuitive eating, the first like fundamental, it's 10 principles intuitive eating. I should back up and talk about what it is. Um, intuitive eating is a framework that consists of 10 principles. Um, and they, when you read them individually, they sound a little bit obscure, but they all work in context with each other. But the most foundational one is rejecting the diet mentality. And I come back to that one a lot because so much of what we do, we don't realize is part of diet mentality. We're making decisions at the menu when you're ordering lunch. Um, so much of that isn't no longer informed by what sounds good to you, but what you think you should eat. And it's a huge shift in our culture. We, we rely so much on, okay, what is the diet du jour? What are, what are we supposed to, like are carbs bad right now? Is gluten bad? Is sugar bad? Is meat bad? Is meat good? Are vegetables bad? Is fruit bad? Like instead of listening to what our bodies are signaling to us, we are looking to so many external sources. And when I started to go inward for those cues, um, I don't think I was prepared to feel all the things I was going to feel. And I, I think people, when, when I talk about intuitive eating, it's met re- with resistance. Um, but I think one of them is that dieting or eating a certain way or controlling our food is a really good coping mechanism. And for those, those years that I dieted, it, it helped me get through a lot of stressful situations. And I can look back and appreciate that, that it was there for me. The dieting was there for me to control something that felt like I just couldn't deal with without it. And I feel really grateful and pretty privileged to be in a position now where I no longer need that. Um, I don't experience food insecurity. I have enough to eat. Um, and I always have, and that's a huge privilege too. My first reject the diet mentality, and it's kind of a funny story if you want to hear. So I, we lived in Texas at the time <clears throat> and there is an ice cream place. So if any of your listeners are in North Texas, like Dallas, Denton, Texas, Fort Worth area, there's this fabulous little grocery store slash ice cream store called Brahms. And they have a drive-thru, which I loved. And it was very close to our home. And I never, like, I never let myself eat ice cream because if I ate any of it, I would eat all of it. And so I was like, 
very afraid of ice cream. Um, and so my first act of diet rebellion was going to the drive-thru and ordering um, this mixer. And it was called it was like this Reese's peanut butter cup mixer. It's like vanilla. It was like essentially a blizzard from Dairy Queen, but it was the Texas version. Um, and I told myself like, I'm going to eat this and I'm going to move on with my day. I'm going to eat this and that's it. Like, I'm not going to compensate for anything. I'm just going to eat it and move on. And I did that the next day and the next day and the next day and the day after that. And even it was on the way home from church, I would stop on the way home from church and get it and go home. And I did that a a stinking (laughs) Reese's peanut butter cup mixer from Brahms for like a month and a half. And after about six weeks of doing that, so I don't know, 40 plus times of doing that, I took the first bite and thought, this doesn't even taste good anymore. And the honeymoon phase was over because I had restricted that, that food, you know, the sweet, carby, ice cream, candy, whatever, for so long that I had all this backed up desire for it. And once that was met, once it was really met and um, fulfilled, it was no longer appealing. And that, I mean, that's, that's habituation 101. Um, you talk about it from a psychological perspective, just get used to it and no longer has the same appeal. But um, for me, it was the first, when I finished that, it was the first time I had trusted my body to tell me what she wanted. And I had ignored that and pushed it down for so long. And it was like, it was like a dam breaking. I mean, I was not prepared for the feelings I would feel. Um, it was a, it was like waking up and I, I dove in head first from, from that point and really worked through all of the principles. Um, I spent a lot of time, um, at the time I was still on social media and I was really trying to unlearn these beauty ideals and spent a lot of time looking at diverse body sizes, looking at people in all different shapes and sizes and colors and different levels of ability and different expressions. And the more I was exposed to all different people, the stronger I felt that we're not just a body. And sometimes we get so hung up on just being a body that we forget that we're souls and we forget that we are divine and that we are children of heavenly parents and we're created in their image. And I really, um, I really felt that so strongly at the same time that this was all happening. Um, this is going to be like, a 180. <laughs> At the same time, this is all happening. Um, my family all um, decided to step away from the church. Wow. So my parents, um, my brothers and my sister stopped attending church and stopped participating. Um, and so I still am the only active member of my family of origin. I have some aunts and uncles who are still participating and a lot that aren't. Um, And that was, that rocked my world. You know, I think so many times we talk about what would it be like if my child left the church? And, and I appreciate in your book, how much you addressed that and talked about that and how many people shared their experiences with those fears. Um, And I know that it's not very common, but something we never talk about is what happens if my parents leave the church? Interesting. What happens if my parents and my siblings and my grandparents are no longer LDS. I should clarify and say that my grandpa is. Um, what happens when I'm in the religious minority of my family? Um, it can feel really isolating. And I had to really go through a lot of my beliefs and figure out which ones I could keep and which ones were just kind of 
some baggage I'd picked up along the way. Um, but I was, I could trust myself and I could trust my intuition and the spirit to do that because I could trust my body. And I was at a place where I could deal with difficult emotions, where I could sit in that discomfort and I could lean into it and I would be okay. So I really feel like my heavenly parents had set me up for success for something that was going to be pretty hard. And it still continues to be hard. Um, I, I feel sometimes isolated from my peers because, you know, my parents aren't serving missions. They're not mission presidents. They're not um, temple presidents. They don't, you know, I don't, I don't share those same experiences. And so that can be challenging. And I will say my parents are, and my siblings are very respectful of my decision to remain participating in the church. And I appreciate that. Um, but we, we do differ on, on our beliefs. And I remember, Ooh, it's hard to admit. <clears throat> but I remember being pretty mad about my, my parents leaving and, and probably blaming myself partly. I don't know why, just because I felt like it was something I could control. Um, and asking, asking God, why, why me? Why, why couldn't I have a family who, you know, all went to the temple together or who all did all the typical active LDS things together. And I felt very strongly, um, chastised by the spirit that my parents and my siblings were totally and wholly loved as they are. And that this was our own little unique path for our family. And that, excuse me, that we all were learning something really valuable from this. And I have so much empathy for people who feel like being an active member of our church is no longer compatible with the way that they view the world or themselves. Um, I get it. And it's given me an incredible feeling of love toward, toward my siblings in this world, in my, in this human family, because I know that it isn't easy to be or not to be LDS. Like, I know that's not an easy decision that people just come to on a whim. I know that there's a lot of pain that comes to making that choice and that it's an ongoing thing that people deal with. Um, and so to those who are wondering, is there a place for me and the church. I hope you feel like there is. You can come sit next to me because <laughs> there's a place on my pew for you. But if you don't feel like that's the case, you can still come sit next to me in my house because I know that your value and worth is no different. I love my siblings fiercely and I love my parents and it's been such a blessing to be <laughs> in kind of a lopsided mixed faith family. It's, it's pretty top down, but, um, you know, we have a lot of, of fun together and we can joke about things now. For a while we couldn't, but now we can. Um, I just spent a weekend with my parents and it was awesome. They're the best, sweetest grandparents to my girls and I'm so grateful for them. You said some really wonderful things in that segment, uh, Madison. I, I just wrote down some words as we transition to another segment. I, these words you said, dismantle. That mm. was pretty good to describe. I liked listening to my body, um, which little kids do so naturally. Intuitive eating. I like that you used the word neutral and flexible to describe food. Mm. Um, and that we are, you know, we are just... I think I wrote this down wrong. We are not, oh, we are not just a body. 
Yeah. So talk, keep, I don't know. Yeah. Just keep sharing your story. All right. Well, I can get kind of into more of the dismantling aspect of it. So first I dismantled, um, I dismantled diet culture and, um, diet culture is a system of beliefs. It does. It's not real, but it is because we think it is. So diet culture maybe wouldn't exist in other places in the world, but it definitely exists in our Western culture. Um, and it's a system of beliefs that worships thinness that equates health, um, to moral virtue. Um, which means you can spend your whole life thinking you're irreparably broken just because you don't look like something that may be impossible to achieve. Um, and so, because I really did think I was broken. I thought I, I remember praying and asking just to be able to eat whatever I wanted or making little, I'm kind of superstitious. So when I go through a yellow light, I kiss the roof on my car. <laughs> um, or when I see one headlight out, I do the same thing. But I remember like throwing a coin into a pond when I was a teenager and wishing, like, I wish I could just eat whatever I wanted and that my body would stay the same. I was so consumed with fear around food. Um, and I, I really thought I was going to go through my entire life just having to watch what I ate forever. Like that was part of being human was like, just watching what you eat, like just being on a diet as part of being an adult, being an adolescent in a human body was just, that was just how it was. Um, that's not true. <laughs> that is not the reason we are here. We did not come to this earth to go on a diet and to be skinny. We are so much more than that. In fact, there are um, two incredible women, Lexi and Lindsay Kite. I don't know if you're familiar with their work at all. I'm not. Um, they're PhDs. They're at the U. They're twin sisters. And I believe they're LDS. Um, and they just released a book, which I haven't had a chance to get my hands on yet, but Rosemary Card sells it on her QNOR website. And it's called More Than a Body. And they talk a lot about this idea that, um, at least from their work, from, they have a nonprofit I think it was called Beauty Redefined. It may have just been renamed to More Than a Body um, because of their new book. But they talk so much about how we have so much more to offer than our physical appearance. In fact, I used one of their modesty lessons um, when I taught young women's. They're, they have incredible research um, that they've done on these issues that are typically around women in the church. But I think more and more men are dealing with diet culture and with eating disorders. And I think that they're underrepresented in um, studies. I think men and eating disorders are underrepresented in studies. I think that um, people in the LGBTQ community are suffering more with trying to achieve a certain body ideal, at least from members of the gay community that I've spoken to. There's a very narrow idea of what attractive looks like. And that can be really hard on top of being already in a marginalized identity as being gay to also have to fit a very narrow beauty or attractive ideal um, can compound the complexities of navigating that space. Great insight. Um, I think that promoting weight loss as a means of attaining higher status. So what I mean by that is, you know, I look back at when my mom said, so-and-so lost weight in our ward, but she was saying, if we can kind of interpret that is this person is better now. They have achieved a higher status. They have attained a higher status. And what it is about, like, what is that about being thin that gives us a higher status in our culture? Um, it's what, you know, it's relational. So it's what we see in the media is a very specific body type. Um, we don't have a lot of exposure to body diversity in our media. Um, and if we do, it's usually with a storyline that talks about someone having to overcome their struggles with their body instead of just making it normal because body diversity is super normal and always has been. Um, 
the authors of intuitive eating have this great little metaphor and it's just about your feet and your shoe size. So I'll use me as an example. I wear a size eight shoe and I would never go to a store and say, actually, I'm going to try a size six and see if my feet fit into that one. Cause it, there's nothing I could do to change the size of my foot. And two, I would be so uncomfortable all day trying to walk around in a size six shoe. Why would I do that? I was born with a size eight foot. So why would I try to fit my foot into a smaller shoe? And that's what diet culture is asking people to do is to fit their genetic bodies into something that isn't genetically possible. And it's a really terrible thing to ask someone to do because you will sell, you will give your time, your energy, your money, all of your resources, all your, your mental energy, you know, all the time you could be thinking about ways to make the world better and serving and doing things that are meaningful and purposeful. You spend thinking about what you're going to eat and what you're going to weigh and when you're going to exercise. It totally steals life from, from you. I felt like I was robbed of some of those, especially in my early twenties, some of that time where, gosh, I could have been doing so many awesome things on campus that I just, nope, I just need to make sure I get to the gym and that I eat my salads and, you know, that kind of stinks to think about. Um, but I've learned a lot since then. Um, one thing that diet culture will tell you is that, um, it works, that weight loss works. And there are literally no scientific studies that show intentional long-term weight loss works. I should caveat and say that for about five, two to 5% of people, it can work, but 95 to 98% of diets fail, meaning that people who diet will regain the weight they lost within the first year. Um, and there aren't a lot of long-term studies on it. So maybe that two to 5% also regains it, or they're engaging in behaviors around food that keep them at their weight from dieting, but may be considered disordered eating. And when I say disordered eating, I mean, engaging with food in a way that is dysfunctional with your life in a way that doesn't meet your nutritional needs or, um, in a way that really interferes with your ability to live life in a normal way. Um, I think one of the most insidious things that diet culture does, um, is that it demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others. Um, and it creates a hierarchy of goodness and badness around food. And you feel shame for making certain food choices. Um, you get taken away from the pleasure of eating because eating's really pleasurable. I mean, so much of the human experiences around celebration have to do with food. We eat cakes at weddings. We eat cakes at birthdays. We have barbecues on 4th of July. We have Christmas dinner and Thanksgiving dinner and so many of our holidays. I mean, if you've ever been to a mission farewell, the well, pre-pandemic, the open house afterwards always was guaranteed to have some pretty good food. And we celebrate with food and diet culture takes away the celebration. And that, that stinks. <laughs> like that's one of the best parts about being human is experiencing those pleasurable moments with food, with the people you love. Um, and, and having to be hyper vigilant about what you're eating, it, it robs you of that. Um, and along, uh, there's a lot of things that diet culture takes from people, but one thing that I always come back to when I'm, you know, thinking about the work of trying to help people feel more at ease in their bodies and to make the world a better place for people of all sizes is that, um, it makes it seem like if we don't match up with this picture of health, that we're somehow broken. That if we don't look like, you know, someone on the cover of a magazine that we are inherently flawed and wrong. And we know that's not true. 
we know that we're inherently good and that we're inherently divine. And that's something I mourn for, for so many women and, and more men now too, which is awful. Um, but women, especially women and femmes and trans folks and people in larger bodies and people of color and people with disabilities, um, it disproportionately affects those groups. Um, and we're not alive to, to lose weight. Our purpose in life isn't to pay bills and lose weight and be perfect, whatever that means. We have a divine purpose. And this <laughs> intuitive eating is very nuanced. Um, and there's a lot that you can dive into when you're learning about it, but it really helped me reconnect with, with how I ate when I was little. Um, I remember just being, like you said, that flexibility and that neutrality. I feel that now. Um, I think one of the biggest myths with intuitive eating is that, oh, well, if I stop dieting, I'm just going to eat cheeseburgers and ice cream and cookies and bread and all the things that have been forbidden. And um, that might happen for a little while. It did for me. Um, but if you give yourself that unconditional permission to eat, eventually you'll also really love all the things you probably thought you wouldn't eat unless you're on a diet. I really like salads. I don't eat them every day like I used to. And I eat salads that taste good and that actually have salad dressing on them because I used to not do that. Um, and I love pizza and I love cheeseburgers and I love green juice. And I pretty much like all foods. Um, and I love experimenting in the kitchen and trying new foods. And one thing I really miss about traveling is being able to try new foods in new places. Um, but uh, food is such a, integral part of our human experience and to demonize it is so unfair to what, what we do. Um, and I think, you know, Christ says to become like a child and, you know, I've put my own spin on that and look at kids and how they eat before we get to them and talk to them about whether their foods are good and bad, just even a newborn baby. You know, if you, if you've ever tried to feed a newborn baby or an infant a bottle and they didn't want it, you're not feeding that baby a bottle. They're going to flat out refuse. And if a baby's hungry, they're not going to stop, stop crying until they're fed because they're so attuned to their needs. And I do believe that is something we can get back to. And I, I think it is a, it's a holy work to get back to because I think we are created to eat in a way that doesn't get, um, that doesn't get in our way of doing important work. And I think the word of wisdom is great because it's really balanced. And we read through DNC 89 and so much of it is just about balance. It's, you know, running and not being weary, walking and not fainting and eating things in season. And that can be turned into a diet too. Don't get me wrong, because I have heard people talk about how they've turned the word of wisdom into a diet. That's not my point here. My point is that to me, the word of wisdom is inviting us to be balanced and to be, and to use our, our minds and to listen to ourselves and to use our wisdom, our inner wisdom, and to return to that if we've gotten away from it. If you're one of the unicorns who has never been on a diet and has never gotten away from that, um, I would love to talk to you about your experience in life with no diets, because that is amazing. Um, when I talked about dismantling my faith, um, in part, it was because my family was, you know, they had left, um, not all at the same time, but pretty close together. And I, it's really hard to grow up being taught something by people who then decide that it's no longer right. That, that can do a lot to what you believe. And I, I'll also say I had a great therapist going through this and I would definitely recommend someone, um, at least having someone that they can talk to and who can give an objective opinion on things, um, if not an, an actual therapist. Um, and I did a lot of like, is this even real? Is this even true? And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. And um there are a few resources. I know you mentioned them a lot, but um, Thomas McConkie, 
I have so much appreciation for his work. Um, Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis was so impactful to me at the time I read it. Um, The Givens, Terrell and Fiona Givens, I love their view on the gospel. Um, It's been so comforting for me to read their work in regards to my own family. Um, It's just so hopeful. They are so hopeful. And at the same time, they totally love the restoration and it gives me permission to totally love the restoration. Um, I sometimes felt embarrassed about being LDS around my family. Um, and I don't anymore. And I, I attribute that a lot to the Givens who just um, embrace it. And that's really cool. Um, yeah, I do have a great appreciation for um, the work that, I mean, the Maxwell Institute, the podcast is great. I'm sure you listen to it. Yeah. Um, and I love the Faith Matters podcast. There, I mean, there's so many great resources. Podcasts really helped me so much through both my intuitive eating um, journey and my continual journey um, and my, my faith transition. Um, I mean, there, were, there are so many resources out there. If you are looking, they're there. Um, maybe someday I'll make a comprehensive episode list for all the podcasts I listen to. That's cool. Um, one thing that is interesting about, I think just any Western religion, Christian or Judeo-Christian religion is that, um, it, it, we do come from a patriarchal religion and that's not, I mean, patriarchy does have a negative connotation sometimes that's not meant to be negative, but our religion is patriarchal. Um, and so one thing as a woman, um, I often felt like my best bet for gaining power was to be appealing to the men in charge. And I know that can sound somewhat sexual in nature. It wasn't that. It was just that if I looked and behaved a certain way, that that gave me some capital in a space where women tend to have not as much capital as men. We don't. But I mean, that's a whole other episode. But um, yeah, women you know, it's really hard for women who are outside of that normative beauty standard. And so something that I really hope for my daughters as they grow up, you know, they're, um, they're going to be second generation Hayes. Hayes stands for health at every size. Um, they're going to be kids who grow up knowing that all got all of all bodies are good bodies. And all of God's children deserve love and dignity and respect. And these are conversations we have right now. And I mean, That's moms really know. really powerful what you just said, oh, by thanks. the way. <laughs> well, it is, it's important to hit home. I, it, and maybe it's lost some of its grandeur because we say it so often, but um, really hitting that home. We don't talk about people's bodies in our home. No one. We don't talk about body changes. I, in fact, I make it a special point to never, ever comment on someone's appearance because you don't know if someone's lost weight because they were on a diet or because they are going through chemotherapy. Yeah. So to compliment someone on weight loss could be, you just don't know. Yeah. And I think, like I said, like we're so much more than that. There are so many more things you could compliment someone, their, their the smile in their eyes or because right now you can't only see eyes, <laughs> but usually you can see people's faces and com- comment on their smile or just something that is more substantial than appearance because there's a lot more going on for people than just the way they look. Um, and that's something that in our home we talk about, you know, my daughter's in first grade. And so I know that part of the state curriculum talks about like health and nutrition, that kind of thing. And she came home Um a couple months ago, it was part of their unit. And she talked about how certain foods were healthy and unhealthy. And I quickly took that apart and talked about how all foods, whether they're vegetables or candy, fit inside of a quote unquote healthy, regular eating. Cool. And she kind of is still like, well, like, you know, we don't tell our kids that they can or can't eat something. We let them decide. My job as a parent is to provide the food. Their job as little 
individuals um, with their own minds and their own bodies and their own intuitions. It's decide when they're going to eat it, how much, and which foods. Um, we're really neutral about food in our house. And kids, I think, without interference, remain that way. Um, do I think that it's going to stay perfect until forever? No, because they're going to see that their bodies are going to change and their friends' bodies change and it's going to happen at different times. And, um, and they're going to get a lot of messages from the outside that there's a really ideal way to look. Um, and my hope is that they'll have enough information to combat some of those ideas that are wrong. You know, it's interesting driving up I-15 up and down. We have a lot of billboards in Utah on the I-15. Um, and a lot of them are really diet centric. I mean, we like LDS people, I feel like this is a major generalization, but we love dieting as a people. And I hope that's something that changes. Um, I think we're so much more than that. That I know that you're familiar with Dr. Julie Acevedo Hanks. So she was quoted in, and so forgive me, but she was quoted in um, that Allure article that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. Um, And she talked about how, yeah, we're a culture with strong ideas about modesty and humility. And yet we also love plastic surgery. And so I'm thinking, well, how do, how are those combat? Like, I don't know. People can make their own decisions, but in my mind, it's hard for me to, to make those things all work together. Um, but I'm also a proponent of body autonomy. And so I do respect people's decisions and I don't know what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. So I can't make that choice. My hope is that my daughters will feel like their bodies are are respectable and dignified and worthy of all the love that I see they're worthy of. Now, as a parent, um, you have a lot of hopes for your kids. And my main one is just that my kids know they're loved. And I think our heavenly parents, maybe sometimes it feels like, I don't know for the, I don't know what it feels like for them, but I sometimes feel like I have to yell at my kids that I love them because, well, you know, I don't buy them a toy and I don't love them. <laughs> but um, I think our heavenly parents want us to know how much we're loved by them. And I think they try to tell us all the time. And sometimes we're better at listening to it than others. But gosh, if we can hear it, it is really healing. And, and that would be my hope for the whole world would be to hear and feel the love that God has for their children. I love that, Madison. Talk to um, young women. If you're a young women's leader, you've been a young women's leader. If there's other young women's leaders listening that want, that are aware of the culture they were raised in has caused some challenges in their life that you're articulating and they want to break that culture for the young women they're teaching and you've you've already kind of answered this question in the podcast, but what would you say to them? Um, There are incredible resources out there to find the information that said it's a lot to digest. Um, I have done presentations for young women's groups and Relief Society groups um, with the pandemic. I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor. I didn't even mention that in my bio, I don't think. Um, but I went and got my certification from um, Evelyn Tripoli. She's one of the authors of the book. Um, That's really cool. And is there a website people can go is. to to so, learn more yeah, about that? I, so you? I'm not on social media. I did just make um, an Instagram account that has the link to my bio and my information on the Intuitive Eating website. Um, so it has my email address, my phone number. So people can find me at Hello Intuitive Eating on Instagram. Um, and I do, I'm happy to come speak to your ward um, to a joint youth activity to just the young women, to Relief Society. Um, 
to a fifth Sunday. Um, if you're meeting in person, I've been vaccinated because I'm a teacher, but um, I have a couple of presentations on intuitive eating, on diet culture, and on modesty, and would love the opportunity to talk to um, any of those groups about this. I think it's really important. Um, if you're just wanting to do like a Sunday lesson, um, Rosemary Card has some resources. She's on Twitter um, and she's awesome. I met her at a book signing a few years ago and I, my husband always buys me things from her store because I love her. I think she's, she's great. She's I agree. so awesome. Um, and then, like I said before, the Kite sisters, so Lexi and Lindsay Kite are, they're LDS and they have some lesson plans that you can buy for a pretty low, you know, two or $3 um, to kind of inform your lessons um, in young women's. So those are a couple of good resources and their information I think now is on morethanabody.org. Um, but like I said, if anyone has questions, like feel free to reach out. I'm an open book. So be prepared for that. Um, yeah, shoot me an email or send me a text message. Um, and you can, I'm sure you can link to that in the show notes. Yeah, we will link to um, Madison's Instagram account and the intuitiveeating.org website where you can read her bio and, and get her contact information. I have learned so much in the in this podcast. This is a space I don't know much about, so I don't even know sometimes the right questions to ask or follow up. But I just recognize that culturally we need to improve in this space. And we've created a lot of the things that you've talked about have created unways, unnatural ways of seeing ourselves that prevent us from feeling heavenly parents' love because we don't love ourselves because of the way we see our body. And I just love the way you're creating space for all body types to be equally worthy, equally valued, equally needed, and not for this perfectionist culture that sometimes creates just worthiness or incre increased, we, all these things that you said almost infer that increased righteousness and increased love from heavenly parents can be seen in your body type. And how that's not doctrinally accurate at all. No, <laughs> and, emphatically no. And culturally, we've done this. You know, we've done this in a number of ways and we need to undo this. But I think what you're teaching us and um, is very helpful. And I think I'm nearly 60, so I recognize that I have said some things in our family. And, and, uh, and so I think it's okay for us to look inward and recognize we just need to improve. And I don't think it means we go and unsay everything. We just are willing to take on a better narrative that Madison is teaching us and then go use that narrative going forward. And I think it gives us better relationships with our families. And if we're in local leader callings, I especially, I think, I think you're right about young men, by the way. Mm, I think they are yeah. underrepresented in this space. And I think there's, you know, I just don't know, so I don't want to speculate, but I think young men and young women need the kind of things you're teaching and, and probably all age groups to just help us feel better about who we are. Any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners, Madison? Mm. Um, I just want to take a moment to recognize the role that food can play in helping us cope with things that are very difficult to cope with. We don't tend to, as Latter-day Saints, engage with alcohol or drugs. Um, so food, I'm not equating the two because food works totally differently in the brain than either alcohol or drugs do. But food tends to be a coping mechanism for a lot of people who don't use other substances. And it's really effective. And if you're coping with food right now, that's okay. It is keeping you safe and you're using it for a reason. And when you're ready to learn to cope with your emotions kindly without food, there is a whole framework for you to do that. And I'll, I'll help you get there. Um, and I guess the other thing I want to say is that. Wow, that was really cool. <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, I, I think I mean, we all cope in certain ways and sometimes they're healthier than others. 
the other thing I want to say is that um, this diet culture and our fat phobia um, and weight stigma intersects with a lot of other marginalized groups. And so while maybe we're making some strides and maybe we're not, it depends on who you ask with the LGBTQIA plus community. Um, if we're not willing to look at other ways that those, those people in these marginalized identities intersect with fat phobia or transphobia or racism, um, then we're, we're missing a big part of the struggles that people are going through. And we're not fully able to mourn with those who mourn and bear one another's burdens and comfort those who need to be comforted. And so dismantling diet culture, I think would naturally go hand in hand with all the other injustices that we try to combat in building Zion, where we're one, not the same, but one. I love this phrase you use, dismantle diet culture. And I think of Moses, one heart and one mind doesn't mean we're all the same. And in all the different ways you've described, and no one's used the term fat phobia mm. on this podcast in 300 plus episodes, but that's, <laughs> well, a, real, that's oh, yes. a real thing. And I, I have that. I would know that somebody took a meter and measured all the different biases I hold. I would guess that I see people pretty quickly by body type. And I can think of some interactions even the last couple of weeks and just the mental judgment I made on that person um, that is part of, it keeps me from bearing and mourn and comfort and keeps me from seeing these people the way our heavenly parents see them. And if I said something out loud, like you talked about earlier, my own children would hear that narrative and would know that and create worth around body type versus their relationship with heavenly parents. I remember you're getting me talking a little bit, teaching young men's back in the day and talking about creating self-worth around things you can, can control mm-hmm. and not around things you can't control. And the, the fundamental thing that we can control is our relationship with heavenly parents and a foundation on the gospel, on Christ and our relationship with Christ. And there's a lot of things that we just can't control that create value around us with body type being a pretty big mm-hmm. one. And that's, it's really helpful. It's not always easy to do. Um, and there's, it's, I'm hesitant to make journey perils to LGBTQ, but right. um, not to, you know, but obviously being LGBTQ is not something within somebody's control. They can't do that. They can't, they didn't do something to become LGBTQ that they can do something to unbecome. Right. But there's differences there. So I don't, and you're careful not to. They they do, um, a lot of marginalized identities do intersect. And so I think it's important to acknowledge that there can be, there's already, societally, there's already problems for people who aren't, cishet. Right. And so then you compound that with someone who's in a larger body and you compound that with someone who has, um, you know, maybe their status as an immigrant isn't legal and maybe they, you know, so you start all these different intersections and you can see how it becomes more and more difficult to exist in a space that isn't created for, for these different people, even though we know that we're all children of God. And so how do we remedy that? And I think, you know, fat phobia, I'm very familiar with the term and I forget that, you know, so many people don't know it, but, um, it's the water we swim in. And so when those thoughts come up about people, I think it's important to acknowledge them and recognize them for what they are. But just like, you know, probably how to dismantle a lot of other false ideas about people it's another one of those. And I think, you know, if the adversary can put more and more space between all of us, then, you know, I think he thinks he's doing a good job, but we know that that's not our goal. Our goal is to be together and to be knit together. Um, and it's a space where I think we could do better as a culture. Um, but I also know it's a, it's a tough one. 
It's a tough one. Well, I think we'll close there, Madison. I I want everybody to listen to that word knit together. It's a scripture out of Mosiah that uh, Madison just mentioned, and I just think we're knit together, but not in the sameness. We're knit together in our beautiful diversity and our uniqueness, and that's what creates strength, I think. And I also just, um, I have great hope for the future of our church and our world when I meet people like Madison and her husband who um, connected us on Twitter and made this podcast possible, the, just the insights, the experience, the things you're willing to talk about. I have great hope when I meet people like you. Um, and I recognize the role, I recognize your children and the, the, the families that, you know, your daughters are being raised in and a lot of um, children that are being raised, even though it's the last days and we're closer to the coming of Christ, I think it's a great time to be raised. I look up our little grandkids that are being raised by our daughter and son-in-law, and I just, I can't imagine a better environment for them to be raised right now with all the experiences, the the science, the expertise, the understanding, the goodness in the world. Um, there's a lot of problems in the world, but I'm generally hopeful. And one of the things that brings me hope is when I meet someone like you, Madison. And I hope lots of young women's and young women's classes hear your your work and connect with you. So this is Madison Belknap and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm -hmm.